we're so grateful to spend time in your word. Lord, there is no other truth that can even stand closely or remotely close to your word. In fact, most of man's truth is always changed and rejected. But your word is truth. It's infallible. It's inerrant. We rest on your word, Lord. And Father, even in what can be difficult to some, the doctrine of depravity, the Bible is absolutely clear and absolutely truthful. So Lord, help us submit to your word today as we hear it. Lord, thank you for this wonderful group of people that's gathered here that's called the Church of Riverbend. Thank you for salvation that you've done. Thank you for others that you're drawing to yourself. Lord, we are excited to be together. The Bible tells us that we should stimulate one another. Do good deeds for each other. Care for one another. And exhort each other on to love the Lord. Lord, we thank you that we have a place to do that. Lord, thank you for our children's ministries and uh, care for our little ones that are teaching these great truths to them. Lord, bless all of those who are serving in that. We pray for VBS this summer. That you would cause that to be a great opportunity for us to not only reach our own children here, but reach many in the community with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, finally, I pray for those who have had a difficult week. For some who have been sick. We've even lost some. You've taken them home. And Lord, we pray for those families that are going through struggles, Lord. Pray for those families that are going through times of grief, Lord. Lord, comfort them. For those who have had surgeries and have gone through procedures, Lord, please heal them, Lord, and return them to us quickly. And for those, Lord, that are bound in home right now, they're not able to attend and and may not be able to come back, Lord, we pray that you would help them know that you love them and we love them. And we're so grateful they can watch even now. Lord, now bless our time in the word. Pierce our hearts, Lord. We need your word to come and get us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 is our text. It reads this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The great Puritan Richard Baxter said this, he said, I preach as never sure to preach again. (laughs) What a statement. I often pray that as I'm walking up there. Lord, this could be it. (laughs) May you speak through me. But he says, I preach as I may never preach again. And then he says this, as a dying man to dying men. As a dying man to dying men. Certainly we know that when we were saved, if you're in here and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died, you died. Right? The Bible's clear on that. When Christ died, we died. And when God resurrected him, he resurrected us. And our position now is with Christ at the right hand of the Father. If you live long enough and the Lord does not return, you may see uh, another death, a physical death. A death where we say really nice words about you and are grateful that had you in our lives. But then there's a third death, and that's really what we're here today about, to grow and learn and understand how to love God greater, be more worshipful of Him, is we're constantly dying to ourselves. And so really, a believer has three deaths. He dies at time of salvation. He dies at the end of his life, maybe, if the Lord doesn't return. But we die daily to our flesh. 
when it gets to the doctrine of, of depravity, of total depravity, sometimes Christians' flesh rises up here. But if we examine the Word of God, we understand it, teach it for what it says, believe God's Word, we realize we were dead dead. <laughs> That's why they titled the sermon, Dead Men Walking. Because before salvation, you and I walked around like we are alive physically, but we are dead spiritually. Conversing with several of our missionaries this week, um, and one of them gave me a letter, Nilo Sanchez, our dear brother in the Philippines, and I see the doctrine of depravity and, and the trust in God come out in, in our missionaries all the time. And anybody who loves the word of God, who wants to see people saved, we understand the doctrine of total depravity. In his letter, he was thanking our church because we are building a, another seminary down there. I've been to this place. I've stood on the ground that they have bought. We've sent a, a good sum of money down there to build a seminary. And they haven't been able to build it for a while because of COVID. But now they're going. And, and so in that, he's telling me about this and thanking the church. But he says this. We have a policy that before any work begins during the day, all construction workers have first to listen to the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Now, this is what he does. You've heard him talk about this. So they hire a construction company to come build this building. But they look, they we're going to pay you working from 7 to 5. But you won't start working until 8. But we want you here at 7 because we want to preach to you. And in the Philippines, when you don't have a lot of money, you'll come to that. <laughs> Can you imagine doing this, you builders out there? Hey, uh, framers, we're going to pay you, but we want you to come an hour early because we're going to preach to you. Well, this is what he does. And these people show up. And listen to what he goes on to say. He says, among them, five Muslim workers that we are praying for salvation. And now listen to the sovereignty of God, how, how our missionaries believe. We simply trust that the power of the word of God will pierce their hearts. And they will, by God's grace, surrender to Christ their Lord. Look, listen to the, the solid trust in the word of God. We believe, we confess that if we preach God's word, he is faithful and just to save people. See, see the doctrines of grace flow into every aspect of our life. He goes on to talk uh, a little more later on in the letter. He says this, we have adapted to the dictates of the pandemic restrictions in doing ministry. And then he says this, but we are overwhelmed with great joy that anywhere his word, Christ is preached, people are getting saved. Christ is building his church and who can stand against him? Isn't that what's right out of Romans 8, right? Who can stand against the Lord? This is the strength he has. We are grateful he enlisted us to become participants of what he alone is doing through, though the world is gripped with a fear of viral infection. And then he said this. Will there be any pandemic greater than sin affecting the entire human race? And he finishes it this way. Christ is the antidote. <laughs> what truth, isn't that? He says, we continue to preach the gospel with short time we have left. We have to work while it is day. Night is coming when no one would work. Serving with you, Pastor Nilo Sanchez. <laughs> See, doctrines of grace just filter into everything we do. When you believe in the doctrine of salvation that the word of God puts forth, it penetrates your life. It penetrates your prayers and, and your text to somebody and how you communicate to people. We see this throughout. And the doctrines of total depravity teach us that we need to be saved from ourselves. 
And once we realize that God saved us from ourselves, that he did a work that we could not do, we worship. It comes out of us. It radiates out of us. And you know you're saved, and you know God has done a great work. I was also thinking about the doctrines of grace, that they work in our sanctification, right? So certainly there's initial sanctification, that God sets us apart at salvation. But then we call something like, we use terms like this, theological terms, of a progressive sanctification, because the Bible says that God is changing us, present tense, continually changing us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God progresses us throughout this life on this earth, not that we need to be more saved, but he's making us more like his son. And so I thought about this and was praying and thanking the Lord that through my understanding of the Bible, through theology, understanding God more, the study of him, that I grow. And you grow too. This is why we preach. That led me to read um, a a long-time theologian a long time ago in the 1700s, Augustus Toplady. You'll know him because he wrote Rock of Ages, and I'll read one of the lines here in a minute. But this is what he said. He was reflecting back, thinking of the doctrines of grace, and he was thinking about his present-day life. And he writes this. Upon a review of this past year, I desire to confess that my unfaithfulness has been exceedingly great. My sin still greater. God's mercy even greater than both. My shortcomings and my misdoings, my unbelief, And my want of love would seek me into the lowest depths of hell. And then he says this. Was not for Jesus my righteousness and my redeemer. See, I love that. That's honesty. Can anyone stand here and say they lived a perfect year? (laughs) Can anyone say here, hey, I'm on top of my game. I'm walking with God like never before. We'd probably say man, by the grace of God, he's really helping me overcome things, but I know he wants me to change more in areas. I need to be a better husband and father and wife and mother. I need to be a better co-worker. I want to share the gospel more. We always have room to grow, and when we think of the doctrines of grace, he goes, look, he took this wretched one who had no relationship with him, dead in my sins, a slave to sin, by nature a rat under the wrath of God, and I now have a living, awakened relationship with the Almighty God. See, this made Augustus Toplady write great hymns. You know that hymn, Rock of Ages, the third line is my favorite of all of it. It says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Who? what honest writing of our former self. Before we're saved, we're dead in our sins. We need to be awakened and washed and made alive. And so God has seen our unloveliness. He's seen our, our brokenness. He's even seen our rebellion. And yet, think about this. If you're saved here today, he opened your mind so you would know Jesus. What a gracious God. And this is the doctrine of depravity, that there is a God who pursues rebellious, dead, hard-hearted people, and he pursues us to the beautiful end of having an eternal relationship with him. I love this doctrine. It makes me a worshiper. I'm going to give you four thoughts as we wrap up this aspect of salvation, and we'll move into more understanding how God chooses us and elects us in, in the coming 
two weeks. But I want to just wrap this up because there's so much to learn. I feel like I was telling the pastors, I think I could preach on this for weeks. The Bible is just full of the doctrine of depravity to help us understand who we were. But let's look at four thoughts this morning. Number one, depravity has an enslaving nature and a master who is the enemy of God. Depravity has an enslaving nature and a master who is the enemy of God. Well, notice verse 3. You see these enslaving details in this. It says, among we two, and notice he's going back, he's remembering what he used to be. It's good for Christians to recognize what God has done. Helps us worship, right? Among them, we two all formally, this was our previous life before salvation, lived in lust of the flesh, listen to the terms here, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's such an enslaving tense to that, isn't it? And before salvation, we found ourselves slaves to sins, slave to its desire. Look with me at Romans 6. Just quickly turn to your right. A couple of books to the, I mean, excuse me, to the left. And we, let's look at Romans chapter 6. What a passage. Um, such a beautiful teaching on our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that God has immersed us, identified us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it still reminds us of what we came from. Look at chapter 6 down to verse 14. Notice what it says here. For sin shall not be master over you. Now we'll stop right there for a moment. What's the reverse of that? Well, it used to be our master. See, the Bible's really clear here. You had a master. It was sin. It was the one who works in the sons of disobedience. You had a master. And he's reminding us as Christians that sin does not have the right to master you any longer. See, if you're not saved, you have no choice here. Sin is your master. It grabs you and says, okay, we're going this way. Now, that might be moralism and, and some of the great behaviors that you learn from your parents and grandparents, but still dead in those sins. And it just drags you around and tells you where to go. Hey, but listen to this. As saved people, it doesn't have to master you anymore. We're free from it. But the point here is at one point it had mastery over you. Look at the rest of the verse. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, we teach law. We teach God's character, God's truths, God's commands, because that shows us that we could not keep the law. We can't, we can't by our own self present ourselves to God. And so when we teach the law, we all fall short of it. We go, oh, that's the character of God that represents him that shows me that I fall short of it. See, here's what the Bible's saying. If you're not saved, that law is your judge. But those of us who are saved are under grace. And so though we are free from our depravity and we may still struggle, but we live under grace and God is gracious to his children. Notice verse 15, look what it goes on. What then? There's always this guy, right, or gal. Hey, this is really cool, reformed doctrine. God saved me from the foundations of the world. I can just live any way I want and go to heaven. I call those reformed confessionalists. Dangerous group of people. They're not saved. They just like the doctrine. But notice what he says here. Verse 15, this is a little bit of a repeat um, back from verse 2. But he says this, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Should we abuse the grace of God and go, Hey, this is a great doctrine. Um, I was chosen before the foundations of the world. I can't lose my salvation. So cool, I'll get the world and I'll get Christ and have a great life and maybe I'll die someday. Notice this little phrase Paul says, May it never be. 
In the Greek, it's this little phrase called mejinito. And, and in that world, uh, you know how we say something, someone comes up and said, hey, I saw this, and you go, that's impossible. Thou, no way could that ever have happened. Well, this was their phrase in the Greek world, in this Roman world. They would say this phrase, that's impossible. It's impossible for someone who has truly been redeemed, brought from the dead, come out of depravity by the grace of God alone to say, oh, grace, I'll just keep sinning. It's impossible. Because there's no way, because that sin is not our master anymore. We are not, we are not enslaved to that. Does it mean we still sin? Yes, we still sin, but we are quick to say, oh, Jesus, you hung on the cross for that. And our doctrine now teaches us that God rescued us from our depravity. Nothing by our own strength, but he rescued us. And so now we want to live for him. We want to live for him. Verse 16 gives you a little more insight too. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you are a slave of the one whom you obey? See, depravity teaches us of enslavement to sin. This is why we sing songs, our chains are gone. Right? Amazing grace. Because we realized we were depraved. We were locked into sin. Sin had absolute dominion over us. And God, by his grace and mercy, with no effort of our own, released us from those chains. This is the doctrines of grace. And we rejoice on that. As you turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, think about a few things that help, add, help it add up a little bit. Sin is immediate and it's, and it's continually enslaved. You can't help but think of Adam and Eve. Satan comes to him and introduces this pack of lies, right? If you eat this, you'll be like God. You'll have all the wisdom and knowledge. You'll have all these things. He entices them and, and treats them into slavery, doesn't he? He's appealing to their eyes and to their flesh and to their pride, right? Roman, uh, 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. He's always doing that. And so immediately as Adam and Eve reject God's word, reject what God said and believe Satan, they fall into slavery. And we immediately see several things. One, they hide from God. You want to know if you're not saved? Find out the areas you are hiding from God. You'll run and hide from him. The God who loves, creates, gave you life and breath, you'll hide from him. You'll also be very ashamed of him. You'll not want to be around people who love him and, and are dedicated to his truth, who confess sins to one another and keep each other accountable. You won't want that because you're ashamed, and your ashamedness causes you to run and hide. Oh, you'll do things that are inappropriate. You'll try to cover up your sin. Adam and Eve did that. Oh, fig leaves, that'll really work. But that's what we do. We run and we try to find religious formulas and all kinds of things to try to cover ourselves up because that's what depravity does. It doesn't deal with truth. And you lie. And you hide. And then finally you blame shift. Well, it's my parents' fault. They raised me in the 60s. <laughs> Whatever that means. Or, or it's my spouse's fault. Or it's, or it's you know, the life that God has given me. It's too hard. And, and blame shift, blame shift in order to feel okay in your sin. This is a mark of depravity if it continues. Cain shows you the depth of depravity, doesn't he? Adam, God says to Adam and Eve and teaches Adam and Eve, so they doubtlessly taught their children, there's one way to me, one way to me. It's a blood sacrifice of an unblemished lamb 
That's the only way you can come to me. Abel picks it up right away and says, absolutely. I'm going to come the way you said, God. I'm going to come the way you said. Cain shows us how depravity was full on, uh, full loaded on right at the beginning. He says, forget it. I'm not coming. In fact, I'm ticked off at you, God. And I'm so mad. Here's what I am going to do. You want to talk about sacrifice? I'm going to slay. He uses the, the Hebrew word is the same word we use for sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice him. And he slays him in a field. God approaches him and he goes, you know, where's your brother? I don't know. What am I, his keeper? You see, depravity came full on. People tell me all the time, boy, people are getting worse and worse. No, they're not. They're just more creative. You can't tell me that there were the first two kids on the earth killed each other. Complete hatred, complete rejection of what God said, how to come to me. That's depravity. And you and I would do the exact same thing if it was not for the grace of God. We may do it a little different. We may come um, in our morality, in our religiousness, but we will reject God. You get to Genesis chapter 6, and man, it's full on, isn't it? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says this, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Let me tell you how great it was. The Bible says it here. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a Hebrew phraseology in there, and one of those sets of verses and phrases there can be used of a cup full, and, and you just pour it, and once it fills up, what happens? It just spills all over. And God says that's man's heart. It's so full of sin, there is no room for goodness, right? Because man, somewhere along the line, you know, people like Pelagius, early first century church people said, oh, God made us in his image, so we have a little bit of goodness in there. That's a lie. God says every intent of our fallen, unregenerate, deprived hearts are evil, no matter how you dress them in morality. And so the Bible's clear on that. And you go, well, well why didn't they believe Noah? Noah preached for what? How long did he preach for? 120 years. 120 years he preached. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. No one believed. We see the devastating work of depravity. This week, um, actually just yesterday, I received some of the greatest news I've received in such a long time. I have quite a few nephews. Um, there's four of us, boys and two daughters, I mean, two, two sisters in my family, and all of us have quite a few children, and, and we pray for each other's children. Some are in the faith and some are not, and a particular uh, couple of cousins, um, uh, nephews of cousins of my boys I've been praying for, and one of them's name is Jordan. Yesterday, he contacted me, and he sent me his testimony, what God has done. We have prayed for Jordan, and I want to just explain Jordan to you. Um, Gina and I have been so impressed with Jordan from a human person. He is probably one of the, the kindest, greatest husbands and fathers. You just watch him care for his family. Outside this guy, I mean, he is an example of a 33-year-old man who loves his wife, loves his children, cares for them. Let me read to you what he sent me. It's a long email, but I pulled out some of this. He said, I did not know what it truly meant and to realize that just how sinful I was, I was in total depravity. 
the first of the five points that Calvin brought forth, I now understand. I had never in all my years of church and Sunday school, etc., been taught, or maybe I was just deaf to it, that I deserved hell. This kid was raised in church. He's telling me at 33 years old, I did not know I deserved hell. We need to know that in here. And then he said this. Mankind and my own sin, my own sinful nature was an abomination to God. Listen to these words. I was enslaved to sin. And if I was a slave to sin, I could not please God. He goes on and just preaches this tremendous message to his testimony of what God has done. And in the end he says, I was deaf to the gospel. I was blind to God's grace. I was a slave to sin, but now I am new in Christ. I was blind, but now I see. And he quotes Galatians 2.22, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After he sends me the email, he sends me this text. Listen to this. I want to apologize to you, Uncle Scott. For years and years, I looked at you as judgmental towards me and others. But in reality, you were showing love and concern for me, knowing that I might not truly know Jesus as my Savior. There was no fruit. There was no sign of salvation or regeneration. I want to thank you for all your prayers and concerns over the years. God has his own timing and has his own reasons for my story. He is sovereign over all, and I am nothing without him. I am praying for you and your ministry at your church. As I now know more than ever, listen to this, I appreciate and believe in what you do. That's the power of Christ. And Jordy, I know you might be watching today or will see this. Um, I'm so encouraged. Aunt Jean and I are so encouraged that God has saved you. And you've recognized the saving power of God. Now, again, if Jordan was here, he would tell you, look, I was, I was a good little boy. I did everything. He was the third born, I think, right? And, and he had lined up right and knew all the good things and bad things to do. And yet he said, look, I was enslaved to sin. Look with me at 2 Timothy. I want to drive this point home. I got to hurry. I ran out of time in the first service. And so, but I don't get to run out of time with you because I got all afternoon. Um, <laughs> just kidding. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. What I want to illustrate to you is that we think depravity, you think, oh man, that guy. Or that group. Or those people that live over there. Depravity will work with your morality hand in hand. <laughs> It'll, you want to be religious? Great. We'll be just as lost in religion as you could ever be. Or you want to go into the Depravity of immorality, we can go there too. Depravity does that. This little list that Paul reminds Timothy of what's coming and what's happening in his world today has a very interesting study on depravity. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So the last days began when Jesus ascended back to heaven. That began the last days. We're just a little farther along in them, right? Waiting for the return of Christ. So he says, for men will be lovers of self and lovers of money. Well, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Right? But let me ask you a question. How many of you woke up and what did you think of when you first woke up today? Most likely, let's be honest, you probably think about yourself. I'm tired. I didn't sleep well. I got to go to the bathroom. And how am I going to get those kids ready for church? I mean, lots of, I mean, we just naturally think that way. It's part of depravity. But now before salvation, we're consumed with ourselves. We're not consumed with God, what he cares but, but it can be in little ways, right? Good people can wake up 
And they'd be lovers of self, lovers of money. Now look at some of these other ones, boastful. Anybody got any issues with pride in their life? Just a little bit. <laughs> boastful. Do you boast only in the Lord? Absolutely never boast in anybody else but in the Lord. Well, if we're parents, we're done right away. Because <laughs> we're always boasting about our children, right? I don't know that's so much sinful, but, but no, this is boastful, arrogant. Anybody ever been just arrogant on something? How about on election stuff? Any arrogancy flying around out there? Revilers? Oh, no, look at this one, disobedient to parents. How does this get in this list of depravity? See, what I'm trying to do is there's ungratefulness, unholiness, unloving, all of these things we can be, unreconcilable. Well, that's not me. Well, do you have a friend you've not gone back and apologized and made right? Maybe you have a difference between each other. You've not been right with somebody. See, left to that without God, you actually become warring against each other. This is why there's two ruling parties in America. No one will reconcile. It's only by the grace of God we do these things. And I want you to understand that that you don't have to be this awful Romans 1 type of person to be called deprived. You can be in your morality and be just as lost. There's tons and tons of religious people in hell. Moral people, Satan will let you just stay there. But here's the problem. This is what Jordy was talking about. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's the mark of true depravity. You think that you're good enough. You think that, oh, I've gone to church. I'm not like those other people and those hypocrites that go to church. We hear that a lot. Yep, we are. Sorry, we're hypocrites. We're not perfect, only in Jesus Christ. But sometimes we fail. But that won't get you saved. That won't justify your life. And see, you put on a form of godliness, but you deny the power of it. See, depravity hides well in religious behavior. Or let me say it this way, depravity hides well in moral behavior. It hides really well. But it doesn't mean that you are not fallen and have no relationship with God because that's what depravity is. Look at verse 2 as you turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice there's an enslavery to Satan. It says, in which you formerly walked, again he's reminding, this is a former position of the saved, We walked according to the course of this world. The world has a course. We should not be on that course. If you're a believer, get off of it. Don't mess with it. (laughs) According, now listen to this, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now is working in the sons of disobedience. So right here, notice that our depravity is subject to and under the dominion of God's enemy, Satan. He will leave you right where you're at. If you want to think you're self-righteousness and point fingers at other people that you think are hypocrites, he'll just leave you right there, send you right to hell in that depravity. He may lead you and you may willingly go into the immoralities of the world and he'll lead you to hell through that. But notice there's a subject of slavery and there's a master to that slavery and he is the enemy of God and he works now, notice it says, is now, right now, present tense, right this moment, working in the sons of disobedience. That's depravity. Satan has control of you, not God. And that's the difference. God saves us. See, this is eye-opening and it reminds us of our inability to free ourselves from our former family and our former father. And that's what Jesus told them in 
John chapter 8, verse 43, he says, look, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Here he's teaching the gospel. He's reminding them there's no other way. I'm here. I'm doing the work of the Father. I was sent by the Father. I am the only way to the Father. He goes, why don't you understand this? And and then he gives them the answer why you don't understand. He says, well, here's why. Because you can't hear my word in verse John 48, 43. And you are of your father, the devil. And you, you want to do the desires of the Father. These were the most religious people on the planet. They ate everything right, didn't walk with this, didn't do that, didn't do this. They had a list a mile long. They added to the law of God, uh, a law every, for every day of the year. Every day of the year, they would add a new law for it. These people were religious as you could ever imagine. And he says, you are, the, you are of your father, the devil. He's, he lied from the beginning. He doesn't stand for truth. There's no truth in him. He speaks lies. And this is his manner. This is his nature. And you are his children. Now, you go, Scott, you're going to empty the church out here. Because here's what I just said. You either belong to Satan or you belong to God. Period. Now, that doesn't get pushed around in the prosperity gospel world. And they don't teach you to say that at prosperity seminaries. But that's what the Bible says. And we have to be honest about it. We want people to be saved. We want God to work in their life. We need to tell the truth. You either belong to the one who works in the sons of disobedience, Satan himself, the arch enemy of God, or you belong to God, period. There is no gray area. And that's where we get arguments all the time. All the time. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm not, I don't do this and I don't do that. And yet they reject God's word. And I'll say, okay, okay, I, I appreciate this. I say, you want to tell me you're not belong to Satan? So how do you view the Bible? Do you believe all of it? Well, I don't know. You know, there's no women writers. And, you know, it was written so long ago, and it's not, it's not, rel- it's not relevant. And this whole view of marriage that's in the Bible, I don't think I believe that either, man and woman. You see, it just doesn't take long, and their depravity starts, comes out. Because they reject God's word, and that shows they're still in their sin. They're still under the authority, the mastery of Satan. And they've rejected God's word, and they're still enslaved, no matter how they present themselves. And there's only one who can rescue them. And it isn't you and I. It's God Almighty. And this is why we beg for the Jordans in our life. That God will open their mind, flood their mind, take out that heart of stone, and put a heart in flesh so they can believe in him. And God would grant them repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and 4 says that even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Gospel doesn't make much sense. Oh, that's good. Jesus died. He was a great philanthropist. Um, it doesn't make sense to them. They, don't, they, don't, they won't fall at the, at the foot of the cross. They don't see the value of it. They don't get why we sing the way we sing. It isn't... It isn't strong. It hasn't changed their own emotions and grabbed them and gripped them. We sing of the cross as a believer. We think about what Jesus done, and it, and it just motivates us, right? It causes us to want to be better husbands and wives and children and church members and so forth and live this life godly in this present age. It causes us to do that, but not for the lost. They look at it and go, yeah, your Jesus is good. It's kind of a crutch for you. But look. It says, in those cases, the God of this world has blinded their minds from believing. So they won't look upon the face of God in Christ Jesus. So he blinds them. And that's where they're lost. And, and so how do spiritually blind people find their way to God? 
Think about this. This is why the doctrine of salvation is such a beautiful thing, because blind people don't find their way to God, spiritually speaking. Just like a blind person can't find their way to something because they don't have physical sight, they need help to get there. So here the same thing is true. When we are spiritually blind, God must come and get us and bring us to where he wants us to be. And that's why we praise him so greatly. Second thought, and I'm in trouble already. Depravity destroys your emotions and your affections for God. People say, oh, I love God. I believe in him. And yet, as I've said already, they reject the word of God. They reject the narrowness of salvation. Well, there's, other, there's many ways to God. People tell me all the time, oh, there's many ways to God. What about the Mormons and JWs and, and the Muslims and the Catholics? And I mean, they just go down the list. And they, all, they all have their way of getting there. Whoa, wait a minute. That's depravity speaking. There's a narrow way to God. And so you begin to understand this. And their emotions, even the depravity destroys your emotions and affections for God because you really don't love him if you don't believe all what he has to say. You cannot pick and choose. How would you like to be married to that person? Well, I love you on Monday, but forget Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And I'm really thinking about throwing out Saturday. Maybe on Sunday because we went to church. Is that the kind of relationship you have with God? It's either all or nothing. It's Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's all of it. It's 365 days a year. We love him because he's changed our emotions about him. Our emotions that were dead and twisted and worked in our advantage now are alive. God has allowed us to full of passion and love, right? This isn't an act. Go home. Go ask my wife, Jean, on this way at home about Jesus and about life. He has lit an emotional fire in me when he saved me. And I hope he's done that with you, and not all of us express it the way I am, and this isn't the, the rule. But, but you should have great emotions for God. We should be knocking the ceilings, uh, roof tiles off this roof as we sing and believe that God saved us. See, this is what's been lost. Look with me. At, just turn over a page. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I, I'm trying to give you an exhaustive study of depravity. So there's no doubt in your mind that we had no hope left to ourselves. I hope I'm painting a pretty good picture here through the word of God. Chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Paul's going to tell this, but he's going to affirm it with the Lord. So him and the Lord are together on this. That you should not, that you should no longer walk according to the Gentiles or pagan. You could translate that word as the pagans walk. In the futility of your mind. Now what does that mean? That means that you... You shouldn't walk any longer on making up what you think God is like. You should quit doing that, he's telling us. Because when you're in depravity, you make up the kind of God you want. You mold him and make him into the image you want him. To, and he's okay with this and he's okay with that. But I don't really like that, so I'll make him not okay with that. So that's the futility of your mind. You just made up your own God. You didn't make up... You didn't, Study and know the God of heaven, the God of the Bible here. You've made up your own. And so this is what happens when you're in depravity. You make up your own God. Notice verse 18, you're darkened in your understanding. When it comes to true truth of God, who he really is, what he really asked for, what he really wants, what he's really designed, you are darkened to it. You can't not get your mind around who he is. And thus your emotions are not loving of him. Notice it goes on. It says that, you're excluded from the life of God. Ooh, that one kind of hurts, doesn't it? Aren't we all God's children? Well, 
in a sense that God created everybody, right? We are all of his creation. This is why we fight against abortion and, and murder and all those other things. Because God created all men in the image of him. But let me tell you this. There's a child of the devil and there's a child of God, First John. And those who do not know him, who are still under depravity, notice that you are excluded from the life of God. And that is a scary statement. It's one of the statements that scares me more about people who walk away from the Lord and say, man, he's outside the life of God. I mean, good luck with that. What a difficult thing. Think about that. This is why we beg for the Jordans in our life to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to be honest about sin. And notice it goes on, because of the ignorance that is in them. Well, a lot of people come to me and say, Scott, well, if they're ignorant, how can they be blamed for this? Well, that's not what kind of ignorance this is. Ignorance and sin are always taught together in the text. They're inseparable. And here's the way we understand this ignorance, this biblical ignorance that's talking about. It's the ungodly may always be learning, but they're never coming to the knowledge of truth. That's what that means. Paul goes on to tell in that passage we were looking at in 1 Timothy 3, he goes on to tell Timothy that. He goes, look, they're, they're always learning. They, they're trying to find and better themselves. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to be a better moral person. I'm going to vote different. I'm whatever. Or, or I'm going to try to go out in the woods and get to know God. Or I'll go to church and I'll go through this discipleship program, but I really don't want to be there and I always argue with the people who are trying to lead me to truth. See, that's what it's talking about. They're always learning, but they're never, never coming to the knowledge of truth. That's depravity. That's where you and I all were. No, no matter how good you looked on Sunday morning with your bows and your hair and your little tie, and as you walked to, I mean, uh, to church, you were this person, and I was. And we were, we were excluded from the life of God. We were ignorant. We could not come on our own. And then, here's the reason why. Because of the hardness of our heart. On top of our heart laid from conception, passed down from Adam and Eve, hard pan after hard pan after hard pan on your heart. And there's only one person who can penetrate through that, and that's the Spirit of God. He gets through that, through the Word of God. Not through the word of Scott or the word of some church. He does it through the word of God. He penetrates through that hard pan. And notice the next verse to top, on top of that hard pan. It says you're calloused, right? Having become calloused. That's that skin on the elbow as little boys we'd stick needles through, right? Girls didn't do that, but we did it. Um, you know, and I used to have lots of calluses. Uh, now I have, I don't know, soft hands, but... Uh, it's not, you can get the understanding. There's no feeling there, right? Remember, the point is there's no emotion towards God. You, your disbelief has left you into darkness and no feeling. You're calloused and hard. You, you can't repent. And though you go to sermon after sermon, you've heard things, but you can't bring yourself to repentance. That is the work of God. I've told so many people, get on your knees and beg God to save you. And I'll tell you what, people don't do that unless God's motivated them to do it. Because that's a, that's a humbling thing. To get down on your knees and say, God, I'm, I am headed to hell without you. That will only be the Spirit of God that would drive you to do that. Verse 19, they've become callous, have given themselves over to sensual, sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. That means in the mind. That even means physical. means things people don't see. Your mind easily goes to immoral things. With greediness. You desire things that are not of God. But I love verse 20. But you did not learn Christ this way. See, Christ changed everything. This is the work of God. Romans chapter 
1 explains this in further detail. Well, if we have time, we'll get back to that. But depravity hold, withholds love towards God. John chapter 5, they're wanting him to be king. He's, he's laying out who he is, who he came from, what he's doing. And then he turns to this religious crowd. John chapter 5, verse 42, and he says this. It's a fascinating verse. He says, but I know you. I, I want you to hear this. Um, if you're not saved in here, I want you to hear Jesus talking to you today. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourself. Mm, that's quite a statement. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's Christ speaking to you. See, he knows you can put on a facade, you can blame other people for hypocrisy, you can do all kinds of things, but God knows you. He knows your heart, and he looks right into it. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 to 8 says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. What contrast, right? If you're still in your flesh, meaning you have not been saved, your mind is just set on dead things. All that stuff's going to pass away. But if you've been saved, you, you're set on life and peace with God, and it changes everything, changes your marriage, changes your, your parenting, changes the way you go to work, all those things. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It's hostile towards God. And notice this, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then it says this, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh, not saved, cannot please God. So how in the world do some people teach that unsaved people have some kind of goodness and then them choose God? There's nothing in this theology taught from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 that ever shows that we and ourselves could somehow muster up some kind of goodness out of our deadness and choose God. Everyone who's ever been saved in this room is only here because the gracious act of a God who reached down and pulled us out of that depravity. And that's why we sing. That's what makes us preach, isn't it? In our depravity, we truly reject the most important things of God, His Word. You'll reject His Word. This leads to mocking and even seeing God's Word as foolish. Because without the Spirit, you can't understand. 1 Corinthians 2.18 says this, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Listen to this. For they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, I like that last phrase, spiritually appraised. You know what appraised means, right? You want to know how much your house is, you have appraisal done. You know, you got a little antique, you've been hanging on. I wonder how much it's worth. Somebody comes out and tells you what it's worth. What it says here is the the man that's not saved, the person still in depravity, has no spiritual ability to understand, to appraise the value of who God is and what he accomplished. It has to be a supernatural work in your life. We give God all the credit for all of us who are saved in there, don't we? The Bible says we're hostile towards God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. For you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in the evil deeds. That was before salvation. So men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be aroused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy, John Calvin. And I think Calvin had it right. He understood you'll never be a worshiper till you understand how much we're indebted to him, how much we owe him for what he has done. Are you fully indebted to God's mercy this morning? Do you, do you, have you surrendered everything and said, God, I am not here. I do not have a relationship without you doing the work. 
That's a believer. Third, depravity robs free will and turns us over to the power of sin. Let me just read you some verses. You can write these down. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Solomon said this, Who can say, quote, I have cleansed my heart and I, have, and I am pure from sin? It's <laughs> a good rhetorical question. Well, nobody can. Job 14, 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil? It's a question. I remember growing up as a short little white boy, played basketball in Oakland, California. I had a lot of friends that had different skin color than me and could jump really high. I wanted to be like them. No matter what I wanted, I couldn't make myself grow. I topped out at 5'9". Now I'm stretching that with my boots on. I could not change that. I wanted to be like my best friends because we played ball together, but I could not change that. And isn't it interesting that God takes that and uses that as an example? You know, and, and kids, it's a good one. Men, we look in the mirror and we go, ugh. No, you need to go, thanks God for that. It's hard to look at it, but I thank you. See, we don't have the ability to change that. You, you, didn't, you couldn't choose when you were born. You know, Right? You, you had no control over it. See, put that into practical understanding. God did all that. He chose you and gave you a time. He ordained your days before there were one, Psalm 139. This is a beautiful strength of God and how he takes care of us. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can get from that word draw the word drag. <laughs> because we don't come on our own. God comes and gets you. And you remember the day when you were saved, don't you? You remember that time when God flooded the knowledge of his son in your, and you go, oh my goodness, he's real. I am a sinner and I need him. So you know that. And you knew the father brought you and gave you as a gift to the son and he opened your eyes. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, know that we are adequate, excuse me, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. Isaiah 53, this great passage of the coming lamb, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's salvation. We don't come on our own. We just can't make it there. At the fall, humanity lost its free will. It lost it. In regards to salvation, it gained slavery and depravity. Now sin and depravity control the will of the unsaved. We're at its beck and call before we're saved. It tells us what to do. It, it controls us. And though there may be moral help there, it, it leads us right to death in that morality. Romans chapter 1 it's such a beautiful text. I'm, I don't quite have time to go there. But it says that although they knew there was a God, they did not honor him or glorify and worship him. Isn't that interesting? G and I for years did vacation Bible schools out through the deserts of um, northern Nevada and south, southeastern Oregon. Places where there's never been churches out there. Um, places where the, the grace of God has never been taught in many places. We would gather these little ranch kids and um, they would come and and Native American kids and all kinds of different people living out there in the middle of nowhere. And we began to tell the story of who God was. 
We never met a child ever who didn't believe there was a God until somebody lied long enough and loud enough to them that there was no God. I remember living in our town and our church was growing. God, by his grace, was taking this little teeny church out in the middle of nowhere and drew the attention of some people. And one day, the uh, superintendent of Modoc Schools, our county, showed up at my office. And he'd heard we were homeschooling and we had these four boys. And of course, he wanted our kids in there. And, and I wasn't against it, but um, I said, well, there's just you know, one thing. And, and for us to send our kids there, we would have to do a lot of instruction because you, t- you would tell our kids that God's a liar. And of course, he about fell out of the chair. I mean, he's like, what? You know, he thought himself as some kind of religious moral. I said, well, let me just ask you a question. Who do you tell the kids who created the world? And he put his head down. I said, so we raise our children according to the Bible, and the Bible says very clearly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things came from him. He sustains it, controls it, owns it, has everything to it. You tell them that it didn't. I said, now, I'm not against Christian kids going to public schools, and I think if that's what God has done and their parents are working extra hard, they should send their kids there. But look, you have a whole different worldview. And look, your mind is darkened, and God has showed himself, and you have rejected him. All of that science that you have now turned over to some big bang theory that and all fall together, you've robbed God of his glory. And I showed him, I made him read verse 20 of Romans 1. I I often did this. I turned my Bible and slid it across the desk. I go, you read it. (laughs) And he read Romans 1. And I made him read it and said, look, this is what you've done. Um, Man, he kind of went away pretty sad. I I shared the gospel with him. I begged him to know Jesus Christ. And see, that's what happens. Though God has revealed himself, the Godhead, the Bible says the Godhead is revealed in his creation. And it says all men, there's nobody that won't be um, uh, targeted or, or, or understood that, he was, that they know the truth, right? They deserve what they get. The Bible's very clear in that Romans 1 because they rejected the truth of God. And, and listen, as I close this point, I don't care if you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, under law or under grace, This truth is always the same. God saves deprived man. And I've showed you text after text from Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. They all say the same thing, that you must be saved through God alone as he turns your heart and mind and captures it and changes your heart out for a heart of flesh and see Jesus Christ as your Savior. And only he can do that because that's a supernatural work. Um, Pastor Brian read uh, um, Titus chapter 3 verse 3 through 7, and it does the exact same thing. We once were this, enslaved to sin. It goes all through that. But when Jesus appeared, he saved us. What a great message. Spurgeon said this, we believe that the work of regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and faith is not an act of man's free will and power, but of the mighty, efficacy, uh, uh, irresistible grace of God. He went on to say this, the greatest enemy of the human soul is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation rather than God. That's the danger. Last point here before we move to uh, communion. This is a point I just want to help in some application. The doctrine of depravity applied. Well, Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your sins and trespasses and sins. I don't know if you've ever been to the doctrine. Some of you have maybe gone through this. I know there's some dear people in your I prayed for you. And you went to the doctor. They took blood. They, they did all the tests, ran you through all this. And then there's that day he walks in and he's got that file. 
and he begins to tell you you're dying or you have cancer or something. Well, what the Bible has done, the great physician that wrote truth down in the word of God is he's walked into the room with us and this is what he says before salvation. You can't see, you can't understand, you can't hear, you can't receive, you can't please me, you can't come, you can't call, you can't believe, and you're dead. But the good news is I can overcome all that. See, that's the Bible. That's what makes worshipers. Nowhere in that does it says, but if you really muster up a truth and find somewhere in that disease, spiritually disease-ridden body of yours to muster up some truth to choose me, maybe I'll let you in. That's what the Bible talks. The report is in, we're dead. But God, verse 4, but God, rich in mercy, makes us alive few more practical things just to think through here. We're only free to choose out of our own nature. If your nature is deprived, that's where your choices are. You can't choose God in your depravity. You can choose a lot of things. You can choose a lot of sin. You can choose a lot of moral things. You can choose a lot of that, but you can't choose God. We choose out of our nature. And if we're still in the nature of depravity, we are only free to choose sin of depravity. And whatever moral upbringing we may have, there is no ability to choose God out of our depravity. In other words, man is free to act as he wishes based on his nature. In this sense, only in this sense, does he have a free will to sin. Another way to say it is man is a free moral agent. No one forces him to do what he does. However, his will, since it's controlled by his nature, always chooses sin. Therefore, in relationship to sin and God, his will is not free. All mankind is in bondage, to sin before salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. Augustine, I was reading him on this this week, and he said this. He said, a man's free will cannot cure him of even a toothache. If you have a toothache, what do we tell you to do? Go to the dentist. No, I'm just going to stand here and will this away. Some wives are going, yeah, that's my husband. (laughs) He goes on to say, or a sore finger. And yet, madly, he thinks it is in his own will the power to cure his soul. Further on, he went on to say this. He says, now, we can, now can we possibly, without extreme absurdity, maintain that there previously existed in any man the good merit of goodwill to entitle him to remove his stony heart when all the while this heart of stone signifies nothing else than a will of hardness, the hardest of kind, and such as absolutely inflexible against God. And then he makes a statement. For where a good will proceeds, there is, of course, no longer a heart of stone. Boy, I love that. Let me tell you why you got saved. Because God took your heart of stone out and gave you a heart of flesh. And at that time, he regenerated you. And he brought regeneration. It gave you faith. He granted you Grace and faith, they are a gift from God, and he opened your eyes, and you believed. And don't dare take credit from him for that, because you won't worship. And that's what he does. This is our great God. And so, just a couple last thoughts. There's so much to teach on this, isn't there? Um, See, the problem with a free will theology is it rejects the overwhelming amount of Scripture. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, it rejects it and says, oh, that can't be true. I've got to have some kind of control over this. In fact, 
is equal or even bad, I want you to think about this. Free will theology holds God hostage by depraved people. So God, who created the heavens and the earth, created everything we have, has control over all things. He even controls end times. He controls presidents and kings. He turns them like the rivers. I mean, just think about the Bible and all the sovereignty the Bible talks about. But for here, he sits like this and goes, and I hope these guys figure this out and choose me. I mean, it's, it's absurd. That's why Augustine said it's absurd. We never have the ability, and even on our best day, to hold God hostage. We are absolutely dependent upon him. So let me just finish with two things. Total depravity does not mean, I want you to hear this. Total depravity does not mean that people are without conscience of wrongdoing or don't have the ability to do what is morally right. Total depravity is not without the qualities and duties useful to society even, uh, when even viewed apart from a relationship to God or that deprived people sin to the fullest of capacity. That's not depravity. They got morals and they don't often, most people do not sin to their capacity. Praise God, we would be a wreck, wouldn't we, in our society? Now, here's what total depravity does mean. Total depravity does mean people are corrupt in every part of their nature from conception through sinful rejection of God's perfect character and his word. That is, their emotions are deprived, their minds are hostile, their will is enslaved, so that they withhold from God the love, honor, and glory he rightfully deserves. Therefore, they are totally unwilling and incapable of changing their position from depravity to demanding the approval of God's will. See, there's a big difference, isn't there? Because I often get told, oh, I'm not near as bad as the rest of those people. You're just as depraved. You're just as fallen. But God, verse 4. And we're going to look at that just in a moment in communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. You, there was nothing in us. We have been proven. And Lord, we could preach on this till the cows come home, Lord. There was nothing good in us. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that does good. We have nothing in and of ourselves, Lord. So we need you to save. Save us, Lord. Lord, thank you for saving my nephew Jordan. Thank you for opening his eyes. Thank you for my salvation, my wives, and so my wife here, and so many people that stand before us here. Um, Lord, there's so many. You've opened their hearts, and you've given them a heart of flesh. Lord, we praise you. We give you praise for that, Lord. And we ask you to bless our time on the table because, Lord, we can celebrate the table, the Lord's table, because you have saved us from depravity and given us a right position with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.